You're listening to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment. That means you get paid first. You're front of the line for revenue. It's fee. It's no fees attached to it, and it's in the tech business. So you can just uh, find out more by going to soleraclub.com. You know, I can't help myself. There's just so much wonderful theater at the Paris Climate Summit that I can't let it pass. And by the way, wait till you hear my goofy when I feature the dumbest thing said at the Paris Summit. The real question is, are you going to be surprised at who said it? Now, I love the New York Times headline Monday. Paris deal would herald an important first step on climate change. Paris deal would herald an important first step on climate change. Are you kidding? It's Paris COP21 for a reason. We've already had 20 years of climate negotiations. Saying that Paris is a first step, well, that's just another way of saying the rest of the climate gab fests have been a waste of time. But you know what? It got off to such a bad start. I mean, I'm still laughing. 45, mentioned this last week, 45,000 plus people dumping 300,000 tons of CO2 on Paris by the way, which the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency calculates as the equivalent of the annual emissions of 75,000 cars. And why are they there to tell us the urgency of cutting carbon, our carbon footprint? Now, come on, here's the real deal. 44,000 of those people don't need to be there. Do you really think that if Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson, NDP Premier Rachel Notley, or what about the 19th activist in command at Greenpeace couldn't make it, it would make even an infinitesimal difference to any agreement. Let alone, as a Vancouver province columnist Mike Smith points out, they also have the Deputy Environment Minister of the Northwest Territories, the Climate Change Youth Ambassador from the Yukon, the leader of the New Brunswick Green Party, the Press Secretary of the Interim Leader of the Party Quebecois. Come on, it's a joke. But I'll tell you, it's a joke that erodes public support for meaningful action. Federal Green Party leader Elizabeth May defends the invasion of Paris by saying she has to be there to press for the strongest possible language in a new global agreement. Is she delusional? No one gives a flying fig what she has to say in Canada, let alone the likes of President Obama, Vladimir Putin, India, Nahendra Modi, China's Xi Jinping. I think she's got to get over herself. And by the way, did you hear this? How many Canadians are there? How big the Canadian contingent? 383. Eight times bigger than Australia. Four times more than the UK. Two and a half times bigger than the US official delegation. And by the way, props. You know, I got a lot of hate mail for pointing some of that out last week. But props to Andrew Weaver, Green Party MLA in British Columbia, who called the bloated contingent, in quotes, ridiculous, a waste of taxpayers' money, end of quote. And he refused to go. Well, I say he's showing a lot of integrity. He's showing a greater concern for the climate than for political posturing. <laughs> it's funny. And the, and the climate contingent sends me the hate mail? They clearly don't get it. A growing number of people are sick and tired of that kind of elitism. But you know what? Despite Prime Minister Trudeau's self-congratulatory declaration that Canada is back, and of course he said that because the Liberals are back, and he equates the two as one and the same, but you know what? We're a bit player. Canada's only responsible for 1.6% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, but I think it's like, I just did a back-of-the-envelope calculation, 23% of the, 20, of the self-serving political grandstanding. 
And let's be honest, we're not going to meet our emissions target. Paul Booth, he's a former federal deputy environment minister, now a professor at the Ivy School of Business. He wrote this in McLean's, that even under the most optimistic provincial target, Canada as a whole has no chance of meeting its promises. I mean, maybe when Rachel Notley finishes taking her bows in Paris, her Paris soulmates might want to know that her climate action plan calls for a 42% increase by 2030 in greenhouse gas emissions produced in the oil sands. But that also doesn't really matter. Despite the overreaching kind of hype, the oil sands contribute something like 15 one-hundredths of 1% to global greenhouse gas emissions. But you know what? No other country is going to meet their targets either. Now, to be fair, I'm sure the recipients of Prime Minister Trudeau's pledge to give $530 million tax dollars every year for the next five years to help poor countries fight climate change are happy that Canada's there. Now, of course, the summit's going to conclude with an agreement. We hear news of that today, which, just like past agreements, though, there'll be no standardized measures for improvement, no penalties for failing to meet the targets, and no specific plans. We don't have one in Canada yet because it involves all the provinces, the cities, etc., but we don't have a specific plan to reach the reductions. And as he said, you know what the 45,000 attendees in Paris demonstrate? Nobody, no country seems ready to cut their own consumption. I'm going to take a break. Top three stories smart people are talking about. There's some beauties this week. Michael Levy up on deck. Plus, i got a big, fat idea before we're done here. Stay with us on the Chorus Network. Do you enjoy paying more tax than you have a legal obligation to? If you enjoy that, then don't listen after the top of the hour. Why? Because Tim Sesnick is going to be there, our tax guru, telling you what specific steps you need to take before the end of the year to make sure you're not paying more tax than your legal obligation. And by the way, if you don't feel you pay enough tax, there's nothing stopping you from just sending a check to government. Coming up, Mike's big fat idea right now. Top three stories that smart people are talking out mulling over this weekend. Michael Levy joins me on the line. Let's start with number three, Mike. Well, Mike, this one, when I saw the headline, I gave a huh? And then I read into it, and what a headline. China stuns analysts with $60 billion pledge for Africa. It is interesting. Eh? I mean, I think people don't appreciate, first of all, the degree to which China is already involved in terms of trade uh, with Africa. Well, yes, they are, Mike. Uh, China's become Africa's biggest trading partner, about $220 billion in trade last year. But that trade has slumped about 18% in the first nine months of this year. And what we're looking at, Michael, is probably the last bastion in the world of untapped natural resources And China is making their reservation and their investment in order to be the largest partner that in years and decades to come will need those natural resources in order to power their economy. Yeah, it is interesting, though. I mean, uh, I know that China's obviously, as you just alluded to, Mike, duh, but, uh, you know, has, has been looking at Africa and used to say natural resources are a big part of that. But uh, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, the, the president of China... Uh, I remember him talking, sort of like Nelson Mandela, that uh, like China's a big deal. Well, it is a big deal. And, you know, Nelson Mandela said uh, this is the African century now dawning. And exactly from what we're talking about is the untapped natural resources. China is going to, or, or Africa, is going to be one of the world 
economic leaders. And China is looking forward, Mike. They're not talking about this week, this month, this quarter like we do here in Canada or in the Western world or even this year or this decade, but they're looking out many decades. And they started this off right away with $156 million in emergency aid for Africa's drought-afflicted nations and a further $60 million for an African military rapid response force. So not only are they promising, but they're putting their money where their mouth is. What about the number two story? Well, this is David Rosenberg. This was so simple, Mike. I didn't know whether I could use like a four-paragraph story, but I think it really makes sense. David Rosenberg, uh, chief economist at Gluskin Chef out of Toronto, says Canada's unloved, undervalued, and underappreciated, and history proves it. Now, is he talking like the loony? Is he talking stocks? I mean, uh, you know, and first of all, that's very little solace if you've lost money in the stock market. But, yeah, we'll still go with it. You know, but what is he talking there? Well, it sure is. But he looks at Bob Farrell's epic 10 market rules to remember. And the one that he's pointing out here, very important, markets tend to return to the mean over time. So just to give you one example, the S&P TSX Composite Index looks set to lag behind the S&P 500. That's the TSX behind the S&P 500 for the fifth year in a row, a stretch of underperformance Mm -hmm. that's only been seen once in decades since the Second World War. But he goes back to 18 uh, or 1988 to 92, Mike, and that was a period also defined by softness in the resource sector and a global economic slump. But he said in 1993, the TSX rallied 29%, well, the S&P trudged along with a 7% gain. So that was the market returning to its mean. And he says that we should maybe take that broader point of view. Yeah, bottom line, he thinks it's going to recover back up. Uh, although he didn't get much of a week if he's looking at the Canadian dollar. I mean, I, we don't have time to get into it. But, I mean, it broke below 75, finished below 75. Uh, as you know, on this show, we think it's headed lower. But so there he goes. He says it's cheap, well, but unfortunately things can get cheaper. <laughs> They absolutely can, but he says the mean on the Canadian dollar is 85 cents. So uh, he says the loony is cheap, cheap, cheap. But as you just said, Mike, what's the time frame? Top story, Mike. Liberals overestimating tax revenues. Mike, we talked about this last week, but now that we've had the speech from the throne, the C.D. Howe Institute study in more detail They just warned the Liberals are significantly overestimating the amount of money the government will raise by hiking taxes on Canada's highest income earners. Here's the challenge here. Uh, The new thing, uh, the new report out of the C.D. Howe Institute was adamant that we're going to get this shortfall. They're projecting higher revenues than they're going to get. But the big thing is this. The finance minister, uh, Bill Morneau, he was head of the C.D. Howe Institute, so it's not like he can diss their research. It's, I can't believe he hasn't seen it. So it's interesting, He's, and, I, and I think this is going to be a consistent problem for him because C.D. Howe is a very respected research firm on economic matters. Uh, we've talked in the past about how they've already pointed out we have a $244 billion public sector uh, pension shortfall. So the bottom line is, how does he ignore the same guys he used to work with? Well, yeah, uh, Mike, and, and that's where I'm shaking my head. Uh, they figure that uh, the tax cut 
for middle-income Canadians is going to uh, be about $3 billion. And the increase in tax to the highest earners is going to bring in $3 billion. C.D. Howe says that it's going to bring in less than a billion dollars. But here's one of the kickers, Mike, that I didn't realize. I can say that honestly. But it's also going to cost provincial governments an estimated $1.4 billion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because, of course, the provincial tax is a percentage of the federal tax paid. So if the federal taxes aren't as much, obviously the provincial won't be. But you're right. That's something that absolutely has not been discussed. And uh, as you noticed yourself, Mike, over the last uh, two months, we just or month and a half, we seem to have just been... uh, inundated with stories, whether it's from the finance ministry, the parliamentary budget office, telling us that federal revenues are going to be lower than projected. This is just another example. And Mike, just finally on this story, is that um, Canadians should not underestimate where wealthy Canadians, wealthier Canadians will do. They will move, even though people say, no, no, they won't. Yes, they will. Just look back to when provincial governments changed their tax codes, changed how much Canadians pay. You saw corporations moving from one province to the other, and you saw corporations moving out of Canada. Don't think that won't happen with individuals. Either they will find legal ways not to pay taxes, and yes, they will move some of their income offshore, which is sure to impact this formula that they've got for this middle-class tax cut. Uh, just one last thing on that. We've got to go. But a new study this week by Kevin Milligan out of UBC plus some others. And they're talking about that very thing. Uh, the conclusion they reached that if you were the provinces shouldn't be raising taxes the way uh, Rachel Notley did, the way they've done in New Brunswick, Ontario, British Columbia two years ago. They shouldn't be doing that approach. The reason is it's easier to move interprovincially than it is nationally. And so uh, there's a big debate going on in economic circles about the degree to which you sort of get that tax leakage. Uh, the where, where there's not a debate is how much more prevalent that is at the corporate level if you have uncompetitive taxes. Uh, that's something, by the way, that the Liberals acknowledged during uh, the campaign. On individuals, it's something that the NDP under Thomas Mulcair acknowledged. So it's an ongoing debate to what degree you get that slippage. Uh, great stuff, as usual, Mike, uh, and we'll have a lot more in that file coming up. We'll take a break. Come back. Mike's big fat idea. Stay with us. One of the big questions for investors, maybe the biggest question for certainly a group of investors is, where do I get yield? I mean, the bank's killing me right now. Canada's savings bond. Forget about it. And that's a big challenge. And that brings us to Mike's big fat idea this week. Scotty Grubb is a private equity analyst, a specialist, uh, and he joins me on the line now. Scotty, let's just get right to it. What's your specific big fat idea? Good morning, Mike. Well, it's it's really about how investors should diversify. And mm-hmm. uh, really what we're talking about is the private equity markets or, or the exempt market as opposed to the traditional uh, public equity markets. Well, certainly uh, pension funds have been doing that, including the Canada Pension Plan. And it's all the same quest is, you know, can I get... Uh, well, obviously, sometimes it's it's more growth, but most times it's growth in yield or straight yield. Uh, what kind of things should I look at or could I be looking at? Well, there's a number of various products. Uh, 
Uh, I have my license with TriView Capital out of Calgary, so they authorize these products. They do all the background and the due diligence. And so within there, there's uh, one thing Ozzy talked about was the student housing. Uh, Mortgage investment corporations are one that uh, have been a very steady and consistent return for investors. Sorry, can you elaborate a little bit what a mortgage investment corporation is? Well, uh, a MIC is, uh, is really, uh, as a state, it's a, it is an investment corporation. So th- some of them take on different uh, tax to, the, to how they lend their money out. So mm-hmm. if they're lending money to people in the commercial sector, you know, for new construction or condos or that, there is a little bit more risk because then, you know, any change in the economic times for that, it, it, it could, uh, could have affect payments. But the one that I, I, I focus on in Vancouver uh, is a uh, is, uh, is a company that's uh, you know, called AP Capital, Alta Pacific Capital, and they what they do is they lend money to people who, like you and I who might have a problem with CRA or with their wife or with their business and they need money and they can't get it from the bank, but what they do is they take your home as security, so the, so they're not lending money to one or two people they lend it to three hundred or four hundred at a given time for three months, six months, nine months, until they can establish and get the money back and repay it. It's a very healthy, and, and uh, I, 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 I like that diversity within the company, not just a diversity within the investments. Only a couple seconds here. Who are we talking to? What kind of time frame do I hold it? Uh, typically, it's about four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is for people searching for yield, yield plus growth primarily? Yeah, I have a lot of people who uh, invest this from their, uh, their TFSA, from their RSP, uh, but people who want yield. If you can get an 8% yield, smooth as can be, no rough bump spots like we have in the equities market, it's a great way to go. Scotty, thank you for taking the time with us. Okay, thank you, Michael. Great to talk Scotty, to you. Scotty Grubb, private equity specialist. He was talking about mortgage investment corporations. I'll take a break. Hey, what about your taxes? Tim Sesnick's going to join us and save us some money.